This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Thank you, Sarah. My name is John Fox, and I am the administrative pastor at the church. And I have the privilege of getting to uh, preach for you from Matthew 5 today. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. We're going to be continuing on in uh, our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll be in uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 38 this week. Um, And uh, before I do that, I'd like to go ahead and pray and then... We can hear what God has to share with us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, not leaving us in a situation where we're all just trying to figure out how to make it through the day and which virtues are higher than the others and how we should treat each other. God, you so clearly, so... um, plainly tell us what you want and what you're like and what we need to do and how we need to act and all of this in relation to your son, God. So I thank you for your, your clarity that you give us on these things, uh, especially this morning as it comes to loving our enemies. Lord, I ask that you would open up our hearts for us to see what's inside and um, that we wouldn't turn away from it, but we would see what you say, we would see how we are, and cry out to you for help. Lord, would you change us and make us more like your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I have two questions for you as, as I like to start the sermon. And uh, the two questions that really came to me as I was preparing, because um, today's sermon over loving your enemies is something that just really will pass right over our heads. It's something that we don't necessarily really grasp the radical nature of. And, and so it's just a trite saying, love your enemies. Love your neighbors? Yes, of course. Love your enemies? Okay, well, why not? Um, but it is incredibly counterhuman to do such a thing. And, um, and so here's a couple questions just to get you thinking about it. First question, how many minutes did you pray for your enemies this past week? I think for most of us, the answer is probably zero, right? Uh, we didn't even think about it. It's, it's maybe I have enemies, uh, you know, however you categorize that, someone you're unhappy with or someone who's offended you or some, someone who really did you wrong. Uh, and maybe it just didn't even cross your mind this past week to pray for them. Jesus says we need to pray for our enemies. Second question, how many minutes did you dwell on an injustice that happened to you recently? We do that one pretty easy. We don't have to think about that one. And I imagine for you, like for me, kind of self-evaluation, you know, over the past week, um, that my minutes toward praying for my enemies or those people that I at least think are my enemies or maybe there's something between us, it's very small. 
uh, and the amount of time spent on uh, uh, nursing wounds or thinking about things that happened is pretty high. And, um, and for most of us, I'd say it's probably more than minutes. We're probably talking years, years of, of uh, not letting go of things and wanting to retaliate. And so that... I asked those two questions because that's really what Jesus is starting to get at at the end of this section on the Sermon on the Mount. This closes the fifth chapter, uh, which is the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as Jesus brings it up, what we see in the last two examples here of uh, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and then loving your, your enemies, not hating them, is that Jesus gets to a core human desire. And that is, you could say a couple different ways, either vengeance or justice. And I differentiate because they are a little bit different. They're a little bit different, as we'll see. And um, even just think about it culturally. Our cultural heroes are all about vengeance and justice, aren't they? They're about retaliation. Whether it's Marvel or DC, we have, we have the Avengers and Marvel who are seeking vengeance, right? And then in the DC comic book world, we have Batman, whose main phrase in the animated series is, I am the knight, I am vengeance, I am Batman. These are things that we really connect with culturally because they're on, in our own hearts and, uh, and we feel them. And not just feel them, I think we see them. I saw this happen two weeks ago. Um, Pastor Aaron and I were driving down 164th, just before, uh, kind of by the Walmart intersection before getting to I-5. And um, I'm in front of Aaron, and then I see everyone like slow down and stop. And on the, uh, the eastbound side, oncoming traffic, there's median. All of the cars had stopped over there, and there were two big trucks uh, with trailers that were full stop, doors wide open. And then I realized, because everyone slows down to look at this, you can't turn away, right? Um, that there are two very large grown men fist fighting in the middle of the intersection. And uh, of course, you've got to slow down and look, right? And so I'm wondering, what do I do? Do I stop? Do I help? Do I just keep driving? And everyone starts honking behind me and behind Aaron. Aaron told me later, he's like, well, maybe I should drive into him to like break up the fight. I was like, yeah, this, that, of course you would think that. Um, but they were full on fist fighting and I don't know who won. No, no one had actually contacted by the time I left. Um, and that was just crazy, right? It's radical. We have so much tension in our culture over so many different issues. And, you know, whether it's... Uh, it's vaccines, or it's policies, or it's, um, it's uh, politics. We have so much tension, so much resentment built up that any little thing can just make it come out, right? I don't know what happened, but I guarantee you one of those two men, if not both of them, felt like they deserved to retaliate in the situation. Something had happened to them, they were wronged, and they had to step in and fix it. And I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, but I'll give you one more extreme example uh, that I felt some years ago, and that's with uh, an attempted hit and run that I experienced. So this is about six years ago, seven years ago. Um, My wife and I and our two-year-old son were in Houston, 
And one night, I was driving home over a big uh, highway, had about uh, four lanes of traffic on each side, and uh, it was about nine o'clock at night, no one's on the road, and as I'm driving, someone eventually in the far left-hand lane comes up, uh, we'll just call the driver Lisa, you'll, you'll hear why in a second. So Lisa drives up, and she's starting to pass, and then she slowly starts drifting over to my lane, which took three lanes to get across, so this is a, a slow-motion moment, and I think, surely, she's not going, yep, she's still coming. She's, oh, she's in my lane now, and so I start to veer off the road, and then she eventually hits me, and uh, so we stop. I get out, and I go up to her car. And, uh, hey, can you roll down your window, please? And, uh, and she said, yes, yeah, what, what's wrong? I said, you hit me. You hit my car. And she said, oh, it's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> and, of course, vengeance rises up, right? I say, no, it, this is a big deal. You hit my car. She said, no, it's okay. It's fine. Okay, no, we're going to have to talk about this now. Um, and so we, we tried talking about it a little bit, and it's obvious to me that she's not quite in the right mindset. I don't know if she's inebriated or what. Um, but so I realized I need to get this license plate before she leaves. So I go back to my car, get my phone, battery or the uh, storage is full, can't take a picture, ah, you know. So then I have to call 911, call 911, and she starts to move forward. And of course, you know, she didn't get out of her car. She's moving forward, and I do the thing any really smart man would do, and that is I get in front of her vehicle. So I say, you can't, like, stop. You can't go. Talk to 911. Tell them our location. And, uh, and then she keeps pulling forward just slowly, and I'm walking backwards slowly, holding up my hand, talking on the phone. And then eventually she stops, gets out. She says, what's the big deal? There's no problem here. I say, okay, yeah, there's a, there's a problem. <laughs> we definitely have a problem. And then she gets back in her vehicle, and she floors it in reverse. And then she turns left and tries to go forward down the intersection. At which, of course, I made my second really smart move and jumped in front of the car again, um, only to have her floor the gas pedal and then push me across the intersection as I am holding onto her hood, holding my phone and screaming the license plate in my phone so that if I go down, at least Lisa will get caught. Um, and, and shortly before that, Lisa's friend showed up, who I thought was just some passerby, says, hey, you guys need to get off the road. Yes, I, I'm on the phone. Thank you. Lisa, Lisa, go. Just get out of here. Run. And I was like, I don't know what's happening anymore, but I am not letting go of this vehicle. I don't care what happens. Uh, so eventually the cops show up and, and uh, they, you know, take care of the situation and justice was served about three months later when I finally had my car fixed. Um, but I tell you that because that is so close to our hearts. We, when we experience some kind of wrongdoing, we think it has to be fixed. And Jesus will address this as he finishes this section on the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus starts a list of moral laws. As he ascends to the mountain, he sits down. He's the divine lawgiver 
um, on top of the mountain. He picks 12 disciples, symbolically choosing a new kind of Israel. He's setting up a new government. He has this new cabinet. This is the new nation of God. And here's our, here are the rules, moral rules that you need to follow. And so he'll talk about adultery. And he'll talk about anger in the heart and divorce and remarriage and telling the truth. And now Jesus is going to turn to the last two, which is going to be about vengeance or justice and then loving your enemies. And so as we begin, I want to go ahead and pull the main point out for us that I believe is this. The main point would be that when we love our enemies, we demonstrate God's transforming love. That's going to be the main thing that we see reoccurring here. When we love our enemies, we demonstrate God's transforming love. And this was something that was uh, unheard of. It was radical in Jesus' day. And so as he's addressing these these issues, each one, he begins with, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, uh, at first blush, we read that and we think, what's happening here? Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And then he's saying, yeah, that doesn't work anymore, but now let me give you a different rule. But that's actually not what, what's happening. Jesus is instead correcting misconceptions about what the Bible, for them the Torah, was saying. What are the rules of God? What does he require? So he begins with this one in Matthew 5. Matthew five thirty-eight verses 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, meaning there is an oral tradition that's been passed down through the rabbis. They have interpreted the Torah a certain way to say things that are actually not true. They're not quite accurate. They're close in some cases, but they're not accurate. So the first one Jesus gives here is about an eye for an eye. And that brings up the first point, which is really the first of three reasons why this is hard for us. It's hard for us to love our our enemies. And number one is that it's because we want retaliation, not mercy. That's what Jesus brings up. We want retaliation, not mercy. You see, the concept of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament is not actually vengeance. Vengeance is when somebody harms you and you say, I don't want a one-for-one ratio here. I don't want this to be fair. I want more. You insult me, I burn your house down. And this is the way that most of humanity has operated throughout history. It's not one-for-one. It's not an eye for an eye. It's a life for an eye. We even see this back in the very first pages of Genesis talking about um, Nimrod who starts Babylon and, and the fallout from Cain and Abel. And what happens? He says, a man struck me and I killed him. It's a life for an eye. 
So when God gives his good laws and commands to the people in the Old Testament, what he's really doing is he's saying all of the other people, all the other nations of the earth, they operate with this vengeance mentality. You, you extract more than happened to you. So he says for his people, don't do that. That is not how your society is supposed to work. Instead, you should operate out of a sense of justice, a one-to-one correlation. The punishment should fit the crime. It's very much how our government has set, been set up as well on these biblical principles. Justice, not vengeance. But we love vengeance. And so Jesus, as he's talking about this, says it's not about retaliation. In fact, he'll go so far as to say it's not even about justice. The whole point of that command, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, is supposed to give a measure of mercy in a chaotic and vengeful world. And so Jesus comes swinging hard on this one. And he says, do not retaliate. And we just don't get it. Like we don't really understand what that means. And so Jesus actually gives four examples. Hypothetically, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn and get slapped again. If somebody sues you, in the ancient world, you had two pieces of clothing. You had your kind of inward clothes and your outward clothes that kept you warm and safe. He says, if someone sues the the clothes off of you, give them everything. Don't retaliate. If somebody makes you carry their things, this was the Roman law of impressment. Any Roman soldier had the right of law to go to any uh, any person in any city and say, you carry my stuff for one mile. They could do that to anybody. And we see a case in point of that with Simon of Cyrene. When he is uh, conscripted, he's impressed to carry Jesus's cross. That's why that happened. And Jesus says, if, so, if anybody does that to you, which is a normal practice of the day, you don't say, okay, I'm going to go one mile. You say, can I go two miles for you? Crazy stuff. Don't retaliate. And then last, it talks about borrowing. We all have one person, at least in mind, that we think, man, I hope they don't ask if they can borrow my stuff or my money. I'll never get that drill back if they borrow that drill. Jesus says, if anyone comes to you, don't discriminate. Anyone comes to you, lend it freely. Let them borrow it. You see, Jesus is giving us not just, uh, not just a, a satisfying answer to the wrongs of life with justice. He goes even further. And he says, it's not quite pacifism, but he says, don't retaliate. Just don't do it. Would it be just for you to, to address that wrong? Okay. You don't have to. That's called mercy. So Jesus is introducing the concept of mercy as he talks about this new government, this new world, this new kingdom of how we are to relate to each other. And he says it's mercy. So there's a, we really need to let the the full weight of that land on us because, man, it's difficult and it's hard. And we have to keep it at the forefront. But at the same time, I have a couple caveats to make here. And uh, they're biblical caveats. And so, uh, number one is that there is a place for justice. 
Jesus is not saying we get rid of justice entirely. Our God is a God of justice, and he is glorified when justice is served. That's a large part of who God is. What Jesus is saying, that's not the only thing that God is. God is also very merciful. So for us, if you've been wronged, some of you have undoubtedly had some very serious abuses in your your past, maybe even presently. It is not good to live in an abusive relationship. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is emphatically a no. Jesus is saying instead, you have to use wisdom. Don't retaliate. Okay. But would it be loving then to your neighbor to not prevent someone from killing someone else? The answer is no. Maybe they're not harming you, but they're harming somebody else. What do you do? The just thing would be to step in and do something. Jesus is not saying there's no place for judgment. He's saying your initial reaction needs to be, do I really have to extract everything I can extract from this situation? Or can I show mercy? A.T. Robertson, a Greek grammarian on this passage, says this about it. He says, the language of Jesus is bold and picturesque and is not to be pressed too literally. Paradoxes startle and make us think we are expected to fill in the other side of the picture. And he also says that professional pacifism may be mere cowardice. This is why I say Jesus is not advocating for pacifism where there's no reaction whatsoever in any situation. He's advocating for non-retaliation. You don't have to retaliate. Second caveat is this, that we may feel wronged but not be. Feelings are important and they have their place. But just because we feel like we were wrong doesn't mean that we actually were. One time I was on a plane in China and I was covertly sharing the gospel, big surprise, and uh, smuggling Bibles and such. And on an airplane, I was listening to some Christian music, Kadamit's Call, one of my favorites. And I thought, um, man, I am, I'm just so glad that God's protect me. I'm here and I have to be watchful. And, and then someone comes and taps me on the shoulder on the airplane and it was the stewardess. And I'm thinking, that's it. I'm, I'm going to prison. <laughs> going to prison here. And uh, the stewardess just said, hey, take your, take your earphones out. And I realized like, oh, they're just, they want me to hear the instructions on the airplane. I'm actually not being persecuted right now. So uh, no harm, no foul. I'm, I'm, there's nothing to uh, retaliate about here. That, that happens. So we need, to, we need to take some time sometimes when we feel hurt and when things happen to be able to help discern whether or not we are actually wronged. So that's the second caveat. Close the caveats here. Um, if you're currently being wronged, take some time and have your first thought be, do I need to do anything about this? Like Jesus says, or do I you know, give it up? And ask a brother, ask a sister in Christ. Am I seeing things here clearly? So that's the first thing that we see is that why we have a hard time loving our enemies is that we actually want retaliation, not mercy. Second thing that we see here is in the next set of verses, 
And that is in Matthew 5, 43, starting. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. This brings up our second point, why it's hard for us to love our enemies. And that is because we love to hate, but God loves to love. And here's what I mean by that. As Jesus is addressing the sixth and last moral law here, what he says is uh, the same thing. You've heard that it was said. There was this oral tradition that was passed down. This is not what the Bible says. This is not what God wants. And they really messed it up this time, the rabbis. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Is that from the Bible? Should we love our neighbors? Yes, absolutely. Should we hate our neighbors? No. Should we hate our enemies? No. Through the years, what had happened is the rabbis in the the Mishnah and other oral traditions said, our God is a God who hates evil. He hates injustice. And the correct answer for that, the correct theological answer is yes. God says that many times. But a number of rabbis took this to mean, to interpret over the years, that God hates evil. Therefore, we should hate not just evil, we should hate evil people. And so Jesus is talking to a bunch of people that know, love your neighbor, and they think, hate your enemy. Well, that sounds, that sounds logical. Sounds biblical, right? Jesus says no. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. Jesus never says, and the scriptures never say, hate your enemy. But what this reveals about us is that we actually love to hate. Whether it's the rabbis who misinterpreted scripture, or it's any of us who hold on to grudges for decades. We do it. I know I've done it. It's very easy to do. You feel hurt, you feel wronged, and the response is, man, I'm going to hate that person. Now, we do this in different ways. Out there in society, we villainize different people, right? We say, oh, those, those people who believe in vaccines, or those people who don't believe in vaccines. We create these enemies that aren't necessarily there sometimes, and we hate them. But it also happens closer to home. It happens in our families. Seems like every family has some kind of broken relationship where the, uh, the cousins or the, the grandparents haven't talked to the, the children in a good 20 or 30 years. Why? Because something happened at some point and someone was upset and now there's a fissure and nothing can, can cover the divide. Or even in the church, we don't say hate in the church, but there's more acceptable ways of doing it, isn't there? Bitterness. We can harbor bitterness in our heart, or resentment, or we can be judgmental, or passive-aggressive. That's a big one. And it's all related to the same thing, that something happens, you're offended, you're wounded, and then all of a sudden, instead of forgiving, or instead of loving, which is the opposite, what we do is we say, that really bugged me when they said that. And then it may be a week later, maybe a year later, 
man, that guy said this thing one time. And we don't let it go. This is common to our nature. We love to hate. But what Jesus shows us here is quite the opposite for God, isn't it? That he pulls out that God doesn't do this. Even though we're on a level playing field with God, he doesn't hate his enemies. Jesus says, um, the whole reason that we're supposed to love our enemies is because it demonstrates that we are children of the Father. That's how he acts, therefore that's how we should act. And he says, what is, what is this God like? What is, how does God love people? Well, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I don't take Jesus to mean that he thinks that there are really righteous people on the earth. It's a biblical metaphor. What he's saying is there's people that think they're righteous or there's people that think that other people are righteous, but it's all one level playing field with the Lord. And he knows. He knows what's in our hearts. And the way that he treats unrighteous people is with grace and mercy. And if God wanted to extract every ounce of justice that he needed to, or even vengeance, we would not be here. We would not have the things that we have. We would not feel the warmth of the sun. We would not feel the coolness of the rain. And every single day that you live, God is being merciful to you. Whether you're a believer or you're not, Even after being a believer, when we sin against God, mercy every day and grace. And this is how God treats people. And in contrast, again, Jesus will bring up two different groups of people here. Two different groups of people. He brings up tax collectors and Gentiles to compare for us. So he says, you know, uh, for the person, for the, the tax collector... If you want to use that example, don't even the tax collectors do the same. That's greeting other people. It's no, it's no great moral thing to say hi to somebody that you like. Even in one of those uh, first songs that we, we sung, that we prayed for those that we like to know. That's no big deal. How about praying for those that you don't like? And Jesus here will press the point with, tax collectors, which the only real appropriate cultural equivalent for us is somebody that has a stigma of being a child molester. It's somebody in the society that you look at and you're like, oh, that's the like, worst of the worst there, man. Same for tax collectors in Jesus' day. Or he says Gentiles. If you just greet people like Gentiles, that means people who don't fear God. People don't, they don't love God and they don't want anything to have to do with him. That's nothing admirable or virtuous. Instead, we are to act as God acts with us, which is full of mercy and grace. And we simply cannot fathom the endless amount of mercy and grace that God gives us every day. Jesus demands that his followers not only love their neighbors, but their enemies as well. And this is probably most evident when you actually try to pray for uh, an enemy. Something happens in your heart, at least in my heart, when I do that. And one of the first thoughts is, 
I don't want to do that. I don't want to pray for that person. And not just like, you know, soft prayers, like, oh, God, keep them from harm. Yeah, blah, blah. But like, God, bless them. God, give them a good marriage. God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you make your face shine on them? Would they experience blessing in every area of life? That is a click beyond, I'm not going to do anything. And that's the kind of love that we see in the gospel. So that's the third point for us here. And that is uh, that loving our enemies is difficult because we're imperfect. But Jesus was perfect on our behalf. Jesus was perfect on our behalf. In the last verse in this chapter, verse 48, Jesus says these words. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you got to that verse and you think, excellent, I can do it. Good job, me. You have completely missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount thus far. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who are actually blessed are the people that know they have nothing else. They have no hope. They have no reserves. They have no no real will that they can stand on, no good works. And then talking about all six of these moral laws, that if you got to this section and you think, excellent, check, I have not committed lust. I have not murdered. I have not defamed marriage. I have never told a lie. I have never sought my own vengeance. I have always loved my enemies. You see the point that Jesus is bringing here at the end that there's the only way you could possibly do that is if you were perfect. And that's what God is. Be perfect, therefore, as Father is perfect. And so none of us has done that except one person, Jesus. You see, Jesus is calling us, his new people, to pray for their enemies, to be perfect, to love our enemies. But what do we see Jesus doing on the cross? As he's nailed to the cross and ridiculed and mocked and beaten and spit on, he prays for the people who are nailing him to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And Paul says it this way in Romans 5, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For Rarely will someone die for a just person. That's what Jesus is talking about. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the laws that he's giving. Perfectly. And and there's really only one way to enable people to respond the same way. There's only one way for us to respond the w- that way, and that is if our hearts are actually changed. What Jesus is saying this whole time is, you people have hard hearts. Your hearts are so hard. They're not tender at all. And commenting on this um, idea is an old pastor by the name of Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan pastor. And as he's talking about a tender heart, 
that really responds to God's commands and is perfect and loves doing these things. It's not just about keeping rules. It's about loving to do these things. You love to love your enemies. He talks about how a heart is transformed. And for him, um, there was a, a mythological metal called adamant. And uh, we get the, the same word adamantium from it with Wolverine, of course, his unbreakable bones, unbreakable metal. And even though Sibs didn't know about Wolverine, he knew about adamant. And here's, here's what he said about it. He said, again, tenderness of heart is wrought by an apprehension of tenderness and love in Christ. A soft heart is made soft by the blood of Christ. Many say that an adamant cannot be melted with fire, but by blood. I cannot tell whether this to be true or no, but I am sure nothing will melt the hard heart of man but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Savior. When a man considers of the love that God hath shewed him, great word, in sending his Son and doing such great things as he hath done in giving us Christ to satisfy his justice and setting us free from hell, Satan, and death, the consideration of this with the persuasion that we have interest in the same melt the heart and makes it become tender. Only Christ can melt your heart. If you have bitterness and resentment and envy and anything like that in your heart, Christ is the only one who can change it. And seeing what he's done for you while you are still an enemy of him, should melt your heart and change it. Turn the unbreakable, cold heart into something that is beating and tender and full of life. And so if that's you this morning, if you don't know Christ, look at him. See what he has done for you. If you know Christ, look again and see what he has done. And as we close, three points of application here. Consider, number one, not retaliating when you are wronged. We have to keep that at the front of our vision. When Jesus talks about vengeance and justice, when you're wronged, immediately say, Lord, do I, do I just need to let go? Do I just need to let go in this situation? Second, pray for people who have wronged you. This is something really that is so hard But as you do it, you find out not only does God end up blessing other people as he answers your prayers, people that you don't like, your enemies, but God also starts changing your own heart towards them. I've experienced that a number of times, praying for somebody who hurt me, I didn't like them, or or some grudge. So you start praying, God, would you bless them? And not long into it, God will start changing your own heart to where you're concerned about them and you care for them. And third thing here, that we need to meditate on God's love. Meditate on God's love for you, especially in the cross. There's so many things that we could do that are noteworthy, that are good for us, to thank God for his abundant mercies and grace, the sun, the rain, like we said, but chiefly in the cross. It never gets old. It should never get old for us, for all of eternity. If what we're saying is, blessed is the lamb who is slain for us, 
then how can we say it's boring? It's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Blessed is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us such great truth about your gospel and how we are to relate to one another. And Lord, most of all, thank you for demonstrating by sending your son what it actually looks like to love our enemies. And God, this is an impossible task for us. It is so far beyond us. It's incomparable. But you have given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us a new heart that loves your commands. Lord, so I ask that you would impress on us people that we need to reach out to, people that we need to pray for. God, that as we, as we love our enemies, the world would have to say, there's nothing like that. And they would look to you. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.